Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 126, Ground Truth, recorded at Metatopia 2016, presented by Jason Morningstar, Jay Silvano, and Benjamin Morrow. respect your time so we're going to get started uh the the format for this is pretty casual i think we're each going to talk a little bit about uh our relationship with a particular kind of games which is uh, games that uh address ground truth that are games as journalism or games as political statement or games uh, that incorporate social justice in some ways um and uh, so we come from pretty varying uh, approaches, which is the exciting part for me, uh, and we're each going to get a chance to speak briefly about uh, our own sort of interests and passions and, uh, and approaches, and then I think we're just going to have a question and answer session uh, and talk about uh, this sort of thing. So uh, maybe the first thing we should do is just introduce ourselves. What do you think? Okay. So why don't we start? Because you're looking at me. That probably means I should introduce myself. Sure. Uh, my name is Ben Morrow. I'm one half of Learn Learn Up LLC with Mari Brown, who's in the audience supporting me, along with Austin, our employee that's going to get me fired because he's better at me at everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the sense of uh, you know, what we what we bring is we're, we're I'm at least me is clearly a social justice type of person, and we want to create LARPs specifically so people have embodied experiences in other people's shoes, so they develop empathy and also so they uh, develop a different attitude about what they could potentially do with activism, with changing their world. We balance, we try to balance between trying to have overt content that is overtly social justice so that people know it's there, and we also try to lay in as much nuanced or subversive social justice content as we can get away with, which we sometimes do. Could you mention the name of an event that you may have recently... uh... Uh, New World Magiscolo happened this summer. It, It was okay. (laughs) <laughs> okay. How about you, Jay? Um, my name is Jay Silvano. I am the co-director of a gaming nonprofit in Portland, Oregon called Games Together. That's all about uh, positive action and raising social awareness and creating inclusivity through analog gameplay. I help to cultivate this community and run it because of the incredible array of games there are out there and that are currently being made that people are not often aware of because we tend to stick to what we know and therefore we don't often give as much attention as we should to uh, women and people of color and certain people who are designing queer games, things like that. Um, And we really want to spotlight those and encourage those people to be a part of a gaming community that they often feel alienates them. Uh, My name is Jason Morningstar. I'm a game designer and a LARP uh, designer, Uh, so tabletop role-playing games and LARPs. Uh, And also, uh, I do games for teaching and learning, uh, mostly for medical education. 
so my interest is often political. Sometimes uh, I'll uh, see a topic that enrages me and the tools that I have to comment on it or to get other people involved are the tools that uh, most cogently evoke empathy and understanding for me, which is games. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And mostly, uh, I think, uh, small LARPs is the, the area where I'm finding uh, that sort of work, design work happening. I'm Jess Banks. Um, I work for Atlas Games, but I'm, not, I'm only designer adjacent. Um, I come at this from sort of the opposite angle, which is that um, I'm uh, an activist in a number of communities. I've done some electoral politics, but I've done a ton of um, issue politics um, around referendums and legislative campaigns and um, direct actions and disruptions and, and all those sorts of things. And I've done a ton of trainings around those. Um, and so I'm really interested in the ways that the things that are done very clunkily and awkwardly to get people to um, empathize with the people that they're talking to or um, to see the other side of something so that they can de-escalate someone um, can be experienced in less than the like okay now you're going to play this person and I'm going to play this one ring ring yes hello you know like it's just terrible um, so um, I, so that's my interest is seeing how we can replicate the way that those movements actually work more effectively in games so that there's more sort of flow. So that's us. Uh, and I think that we can probably bring specific examples uh, to the table as, as, uh, as the conversation goes on. Uh, so, but there, there are some big questions here. Uh, one of them is, can games be journalism? I think, I think we can probably agree that games can be uh, uh, applied or fine art, uh, but can they, can they be... Uh, Informative in the way that a newspaper article might be informative. What do you guys think? Oh, I get to start. I'm always going to just turn to the end of the table. If you don't want to be That's first, um, need to one move. of the difficulties that, that I would look at why someone would say that they can't is because games are very hard to document. That the, you can have a visual documentation of the appearance, but a lot of what you really derive from a game, especially with LARP, is the fact that individual experiences vary wildly from person to person. So to get the game to actually reveal a truth actually relies on a lot of luck that the players particularly encounter that truth, especially when you do a large-scale game the way we do. So that our, our best bet in terms of journalism is either people create in-game documentation or people choose to, and they have to choose to do it voluntarily, create reports of their game experience and how that affected them. And that those aspects, those documents, and those reports of experience can then themselves be available and discoverable for other people. Uh, just before you answer, I just want to give a pitch for my panel tomorrow when me and Tim Hutchings are talking about ephemera and artifacts of play in games, yes. which is going to be super interesting and touches on what you just said. Thank you. Sorry. I think, <laughs> I think games can be journalism in that they can raise awareness about a current issue in a way that allows people to really engage with that issue and possibly at least metaphorically and from a distance try to walk in the footsteps of the people who are experiencing these things in their daily lives. I focus right now on designing free forms about global human rights issues and I'm working on a series that addresses things like that and why I do this is, um, or well, why I do it instead of just say um, publishing articles about it or having a blog 
is because I feel like we can gain more empathy by engaging with the subject matter in a way that's immersive. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I, I think uh, the sort of the kinesthetics of even tabletop play, but especially live action role playing, uh, it, 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 uh, it's like an empathy engine. It, it allows you to really uh, put yourself, it, and this is, another, this is the next topic we need to discuss, but it, it allows you to sort of put yourself in the shoes of somebody else and, and experience something that they might be experiencing in a highly abstracted way, but in a, in a way that, uh, gives you a perspective that reading an article about human trafficking maybe maybe won't uh, so it's a really powerful tool like super powerful when done right which has its own risks and rewards which we need to talk about but uh, uh, I, I'm in complete agreement that it's a really great tool for that job uh, and so I'm excited to to be able to use it to essentially make a statement for people to discover on their own if 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 they're lucky and and they uh, and and they're uh, open to it, I'm inclined to think that they can be. But one of the things that a lot of people I think look for in games is some kind of resolution, if not if not an ending, if not closure, like they're uh, like a sensible stopping point. And the trick to journalism is that you aren't there. You don't know when you're there until you've overshot it by, you know, a year or two. Um, and sometimes in the middle of things, you realize, well, this is a thing. You know, I, I started doing this. I mean, so I started working on the campaign for marriage equality in Minnesota in February of, of 20. No, I went to the first meeting in November of 2011. The vote was on a year later for the referendum. Um, the first thing I heard was it made me think, this is not being run like anything else. You know, it, it was based on personal conversations about values and not like constitutional rights and things like that. But by July, the teacher in me had taken over and I was telling people like, you don't know it, but the political science textbooks they're using in first semester are going to be incomplete after November. We are changing this. And, um, and people are like, yeah, sure, okay, whatever, you're a historian, whatever, whatever, you know, you make history out of everything. I'm like, no, really. Um, but that was not something I saw at the beginning. I mean, you know, that was, that was better than like seven months. Um, and then, you know, yes, we had a victory. Yes, there was a signing. But, you know, I'm a part of a whole lot of movements right now that we didn't know were going to be a thing when they started. And I have no idea what they're going to look like six months, a year, three years. And I don't know how it would enca encapsulate that in a game. So you guys can ask questions of each other too, but mm -hmm. I've got a bunch in my head and I proposed this panel, so I'm full of ideas. Oh, um, so uh, how do you, so once, once uh, the design document and the rules and the, the package that is your game leaves your hands, it's out, of, it's out of your control. It's literally out of your hands. Other people are going to interact with it, play with it, maybe change it uh, in ways that you maybe can't predict. Ben, you'd mentioned uh, luck being a factor, right? It, of people sort of getting what you're trying to sell them or trying to, to share with them. Um, that can go really wrong, right? Um, what, I, what I would say that matters about that is can you create conditions that make it easier for luck to win for you? 
is that I can throw a ball to someone, and if they have a baseball glove, their chance of catching it is much better. Can you give people the tools to pick up what you want them to, to discover? Does the environment actually encourage them to take those kinds of risks to discover those things? And I think that works. Now, uh, do you think that there's a difference between a, a very large-scale event and, uh, like, three of your friends and you in your living room in terms of your ability to achieve success? Uh, there is a difference, but what we've discovered with large-scale events is that if you take your hand off the till a little bit and you allow yourself to engage with a little bit of trust, you will find that people actually surprise you in ways that are absolutely beautiful and do things in ways that you kind of hoped someone might do and that the discovery, because it's genuinely emergent, you hoped it would happen but you didn't create it and it's an emergent discovery, uh, is even more profound because it's not a message that I had told someone, it's a message I had hoped someone would discover. Mm -hmm. so, so Jay, you're sort of on the opposite end of that mm -hmm. in that you're creating games that are very focused and uh, up front you're talking about a particular issue. Would right. You, would you say that's fair? They're very on the nose, okay. you might say. It, um, how, and, how can that go wrong? Um, so the, the biggest risk I face, I think, is just boring people to death and throwing them <laughs> a bowl with an entire thesis attached to it. And I don't want to do that. I want the information to communicate itself to players through the game. And it's not something that I have fine-tuned yet. It's something that I continue to experiment with. Um, I recommend a lot of reading material and films and thing like that, things like that for people who want to pursue the subject further, but for the most part, I just try to write a game that is comprehensive and tidy enough um, that there's nothing left to take away instead of nothing left to add, and um, I think people who have engaged with it that far and have actually read the entire game and are interested in playing it are well on their way to understanding what's going on and what's going to be required of them. So there's an element of trust there. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, which is, I think, completely valid. And I think it's um, it's always going to be a certain type of person who's, who's going to seek out games like that. And um, I think we can just hope that we're putting the games out there so that it reaches more and more of those types of people. But I think people who want to play a game about human trafficking are already interested in sure. games that can raise awareness and that they can share with others. I think uh, I'm, I split the difference between the two of you because I'm, I'm writing games that, that thematically are uh, on the nose, but that I put a gloss on that makes it more accessible. Um, and this is not a diss to either of you, uh, but, but uh, what I've found through trial and error is that uh, by creating a level of abstraction uh, with a, maybe a difficult issue, you can get more buy-in. So, for example, I have a game where you're expected to play uh, combat interpreters in Afghanistan. And were I to say, hey, we're going to play a game about combat interpreters in Afghanistan, a lot of people would be like, thanks, uh, I got something else to do that night. Uh, because you don't want to get it wrong, right? There's an issue of appropriation, and there's some other very uncomfortable truths related to that that are very close to home for an American audience. Uh, but if I say, hey, we're going to play a game about combat interpreters in space Afghanistan, uh, I get more buy-in. And, and the, the content is identical, right? It's, it's the same. Uh, the language is coming from the same documents. I'm copying and, and pasting and replacing, right, words. Uh, but that level of abstraction makes the issue uh, more in, more easy to engage for, for people who might otherwise shy away. I'm not saying you should do space 
uh, human trafficking. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, there's a like there's a uh, a whole spectrum here of ways of addressing mm-hmm. that. Do you have any thoughts on that, Jeff? Um, actually, a, sort of a question bouncing off of that is that when you when you create games that engage with these specific um, with these specific issues that are grounded so strongly in people's idea, well, first of all, their their own sense of morality and ethics, but also um, the sense that you maybe don't feel like you have any connection to this issue, like you want to understand, but you wouldn't know how to engage with it. How can you foster that that kind of engagement um, without, you know, just handing them a, a pre-made character and be like, you know, I'll, I'll read my lines, basically. Something that I tend to do with, with games of a very serious nature like that is um, I encourage people to not play a character at all and just to try to engage with a version of themselves that is experiencing this scenario that is being proposed. Um, we cheat in a great deal by doing exactly what Jason described, which is by changing some circumstances so that issues that are very resonant and familiar have been changed in enough detail so they're not immediately discoverable to be the issue that they're dealing with. And the hope is that during gameplay and during reflection about the gameplay, they discover that the issue resembles one that they, they manage on their own. And that the comfort that people have with the issue not being exactly like an issue that's right up in front of them seems to help them so much with being able to engage with it. And among the things that, they, that is possible is that the, with that little bridge of a fictional space Afghanistan, they're actually able to engage with Afghanistan. Uh, just a beautiful example of that that I must share. At uh, Magiscola, I was an instructor, and in my class there was this conversation about... Uh, I guess it was about it was about vampires, and the, and the students very, with, with very clear-eyed logic uh, talked themselves into internment camps, right? And I and I let them go, right? I let them go all the way, all the way. And then at the end, I'm like, so let me just rephrase what you've just proposed as a solution to this, and let's think if there's any historical antecedents that we might want to want to ruminate on. And and there were it was a real light bulb moment for the the actual people playing characters in that class, right? It was, it was beautiful. It yeah. was really, really nice. And, and among the gimmicks that, that happened with that is that we had, had players that had never actually taken an ethics class in their life. So magical ethics was their first experience with it. And credit needs to go to Sarah Lynn Bowman in regard to her decision to teach at College of Wizardry a magical theory course and just make it a magical ethics course. And it, it, it definitely sparked for us the idea that this must happen when we do this. And every student took it. Yeah, every yeah. student had to take it. We weren't subtle about that. <laughs> it's fascinating because that that's basically, like, so role-playing is a really common training method, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're doing, like, conversation-based persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sounds like you would run into very similar situations when you have to play the role of the person you're trying to convince because um, that can get intensely, intensely personal. They have to embody ideas and people that have traumatized them and, um, you know, reject who and what they are. Um, and it, it gets incredibly sticky, and I, I've wondered sometimes, like, I really wish we had an X card, but we kind of got to go through this thing. If I could comment really yeah, quickly, uh, Mickey Poyola 
um, created a LARP called Baltic Warriors, which was about eutrophication of the Baltic Sea and the fact that this was one of the most terrible places in terms of algae blooms destroying life. And there were so many well-developed, very prosperous countries around the Baltic Sea that why did this happen? And what the technique he used is because this was a very political political LARP that was about Viking zombies, that, is, that people who were from one sphere in terms of the government or regulatory agencies or from activist groups, etc., he always put people in the opposite camp for the role playing. Mm. And this always appeared to be the thing that really affected them the most, mm -hmm. especially people who actually had power and influence. That's really interesting. So, uh, so when you're making a game about a group that you were not a part of, uh, or a group that is marginalized, uh, how do you how do you approach that in a way that's respectful and that more importantly allows people to interact in a way that's respectful, gives them the tools to do that with the understanding that it's kind of up to them? What do you think, Jay? That's a huge question. I know, and I know. and a very large ongoing conversation. <laughs> um, but so something I personally will always try to do is find the ways in which the issue that I want to express in my game, um, how, how that issue relates to things that are happening to me um, in my American Portland life and something that my friends would be able to understand and something that white guys would be able to understand who have a college education and a great job um, who are now going to find out all about honor violence. And um, the best way for me to do that is to really do my research, I think, and, um, and find everything that's relatable in that subject and present that as the very first thing to be like, okay, everyone, we're not going to speak in fine period vernacular and we're not going to pretend that we're in the Middle East and we're not going to be this weird caricature of a family that you might have seen in a movie at some point. Uh, we're going to play this in the present day and we're going to be ourselves and these are all the ways in which this is relevant to us right now. So let's focus on that and not imagine that these are things that happen far away and have nothing to do with us. Oh, I also. <laughs> um, I developed a tool similar to other tools that are in practice right now. It's a very simple thing that I specifically wanted for these heavy free forms. That's just um, you wear stickers on your chest that are like in the, the order of traffic signals, um, red, yellow, green. And the reason I put this in place and started using it in LARPs I run instead of um, lines and veils is because I wanted a signal that people could give each other for pushing harder. And even if it's something that's really scary and you're busy crying and nobody knows what to do, you can tap green and let everyone know, no, I'm totally into crying. And they could be like, cry more. Yes, I'm into it. And, that is and, so good. And we can, we can really push each other's boundaries, but you can move to another color if it's pushing too hard. And then, and then lines and veils and, and break and cut and things like that are more relevant to, to yellow and red. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but that same sort of system is also used in the autistic community um, at large that. at like events at Autreat and places like that, so that you can indicate sort of where you are. You know, and green is like I'm open to interactions. Yellow is only if you know me already, and red is I don't want to talk to anybody right now. Um, 
in so and uh, like at the big gala that they have in Washington D.C. for one of the um, major organizations, they actually have it on like a little flip thing. It's like three little cards on rings, and so you can flip it as needed. So that's that, smart. Yeah, it's really a cute. I mean, it's like it's cute execution of a great idea, and I think a lot of people would just love that in their daily life, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, not right anybody. Now. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. That's yeah. so. I wanted to answer Jason's original question, but I was so fascinated by the traffic lights, I forgot what it was. Uh, my original question: Sorry. Yes, talk about appropriation or the the, oh, the risk trying, of, yeah. play, of othering people playing others. Yeah. The, uh, the the way that we decided to do it. Um, I borrowed from China Mieville, who is a very much a, um, an activist and a novelist who looks at his fictional work and looks at his fictional work and says, what are my responsibilities? And then decides, I cannot meet my responsibilities and I have to do my best anyway. And that became something that we really tried our best to, to, to do as well, is that there is no way that a person from a position of privilege can genuinely get the entire experience of someone who's marginalized but you can still try. And a lot of what the narrative is about people reluctant to try to do anything with people who are marginalized is they are afraid of getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. And the constant refrain that I've gotten from people who actually are from marginalized groups is, could you at least give it a shot? And part of giving it a shot is to try your best to do it respectfully. Part of giving it a shot is also to listen carefully when you fucked up and you do fuck up a lot. But the fact that you are willing to make changes, that you're willing to correct, that you're willing to own fucking up matters much more than the fact that you made a mistake. I find uh, something that, that m- both motivates and chastens me constantly is that I'm often dealing with uh, subjects uh, f- for which uh, it's somebody's lived experience. Like I, I could meet somebody who w- participated in the Warsaw Rising. That could happen. Um, you know, I could, I could meet a, a, an Afghan interpreter. Absolutely, I could. And so uh, I always approach the, the things that I'm doing with, with that expectation in mind. In the back of my head, I'm like, I need to be able to show this game to an Afghani combat interpreter and have them be like, that's awesome. And if that's not the case, then I really need to, to, to keep working on it until it is. And, and obviously, I'm going to fail. It's not going to always work out, but that's my intention, and I think that, that, that approaching it humbly and, and with that the idea that it's somebody's lived experience in mind is, uh, is going to make it better, ultimately. I think LARP has potential to, if not fix, mitigate one of the problems that comes along with privilege, which is um, the, the sense of authority. Um, so, like, one of, the, one of the more insidious little things about white supremacy, for instance, is that we feel like we deserve an answer, and we feel like when we are, um, that when we know something, we are obligated and, um, you know, and, and entitled to share that. Um, when, in fact, in communities that have other, you know, marginalized people, the very best thing you can do is, is shut up. And, and further amplify the voices of the people who are marginalized. Um, and that's something, when you have, a, when you have even a GM, um, that centralized top-down command can fit that pattern very closely. And, I, and honestly, I think that's why you won't find a ton of women GMs, because we have not been trained to assume that you know, like 
that we will guide everybody the best. And it's been one of the trickiest things in my whole life to turn off the authority switch because I was an educator for 15 years. Um, and so I know things. I know so many things. <laughs> None of them are useful, but, you know, I know tons of things. Um, but you know what? They're not relevant if somebody's talking about their real lived experience. That's a great point. Do, do you have questions that you want to ask us? I had so many when I walked in, and they will come to me. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, yes, they will oh, come there's, <laughs> there's this... Uh, this thing that I joke about doing um, where I say that if I just put a disclaimer in my games that states that I don't know if this game should actually be played, maybe it should only be contemplated, I'm off the hook for any offense that anyone might take. Mm. There are games I wish had that disclaimer. (laughs) This game could be a terrible idea. not my fault if you play it. <laughs> but there's a, I think there's a real courage in what you're doing. And I think that it's, uh, that it's valuable uh, and that, uh, that it's making things better in, in whatever small way. So related to that, I want everybody to play your games, right? How do we make that happen? Because your games are scary. Well, I have a question for you on that note. <laughs> Maybe for you as well. Um, so... You specifically try to steer away from or shadow the very serious things in your games to get it to be more engaging, like making it, um, you know, space or something like that. And I'm curious what you do once you've decided on this topic you want to explore, um, like how you begin to layer it in metaphor and how you put in the twists. I'm wondering what that process looks like. Well, first of all, I... I, I, uh... I make very clear as part of the either the introduction workshop or the debrief to the game, depending that it's that it's real that 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 what you have played maps to reality. So I'm never using it as entertainment or as like a content engine. When the game's done, we talk about what it's like to be a combat interpreter and how we have failed them. Like that's what that's what I'm angry about. That's why the game's political, and that's what I want to talk about. And so we talk about it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm running a game here at Metatopia, and there's still spots open for tomorrow's game if anybody wants to play. That's really about my anger over the way we're dealing with the Syrian refugee crisis. That's what the game's about, but it's in space. Uh, but when the game is done, we do a debrief, and, we, and, I, and I very plainly lay out the pieces of it that are directly pulled from American immigration policy, and we talk about how, how it reflects reality. So, so uh, the abstraction is there sort of as the hook to get people to come and, and, and try it. And then there's a, the discussion. Um, uh, and I don't change much. I try not to, right? So mm-hmm. I, like I, uh, I'm thinking about the actual experience and uh, essentially I'm, I'm finding and replacing, right? So like there's not a, not a lot that, that I'm making uh, out of whole cloth. And I'm, as I make these games, I'm setting them in the same universe, so there's shared, uh, there's some competency that you can develop, fluency, if you play a bunch of them. You learn about these particular places that are just like, you know, they're, they're our world, but now it's our space world. Uh, and that, that fluency will benefit you as you play other games, even if the themes are totally different. Mm. So. On my end, um, with our creative process, is um, we, we start with our fantastic premise and then we try to problematize it 
and um, that usually is a process that is in, in a lot of discussion back and forth and we, uh, we cheat as hard as we can with trying to make things as narratively compelling as possible. So if I can make a complicated thing also connected to something that somebody already loves in their appreciation of magic or fantastic lore, then I, I think I'm about 90% ready for them to engage with the complicated thing. If I can make that connection good and uh, we, we, we can make that story matter enough that they'll engage with the difficult content because they are that much attracted to the story. Uh, can we open this up for, for questions? She has a question, actually. Oh, I, I had the question that was, what do you say or do when people say this isn't what games are for? <laughs> I like that question. question. Yeah, <laughs> when people feel ambushed, like, like, I didn't think I was going to have to deal with these issues. I was coming for a fantasy. For example, a, an anonymous feedback from Magiscola, someone said that our social justice agenda regarding... Um, um, gender-neutral pronouns and uh, people allowing to self-identify um, not only ruined her game experience, <laughs> but we ruined Harry Potter itself. <laughs> wow. Well done. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and that's... and that's Way a overperform, really. I mean... <laughs> totally right. <laughs> that's a meta thing, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's not even a fictional content game rules. That's just being nice to each other, right? Um, <clears throat> but your question is, how do you deal with people who feel ambushed or people who, uh, can, can you re restate your question? Who feel that this isn't what games are for. Oh, right, right. <laughs> putting an agenda into what is supposed to be an escape. Right. No, that's such a good, that's a good question. Like, there's no agenda in Dungeons and Dragons, right? Okay. Um, like, 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 the orcs. <laughs> like, it's, like, it's not an explicitly political game. Don't get me started. <laughs> do you do you want to talk about that? Um, so, one thing that I try to do in terms of people feeling ambushed, because I've seen that happen and it's awful, and I don't want that to happen in anything I run or organize, is to be extremely upfront about everything that people might potentially experience in what we're about to do, and to encourage people to adjust their level of involvement at any time. So... The door is always open, and you don't have to stop the game to leave because that might make it even worse for you because then you're drawing attention to yourself. So you can just slowly back away. And we're all going to agree that um, nobody's going to come running after you and be like, why the hell did you leave? And will you stay for the debrief and all that stuff? But when we're done, someone's probably going to text you and make sure, or you know, just like leave us a sticky note or something. Um, but for example, I think it's really important that people know they are always free to walk away. Um, or to stop the game and talk about what's going on if they have to. I, I think it's, I'm sorry, oh, it's good. much easier to do that in a very small game, right? If you have eight, hmm. people, eight people in your living room, you can control for that very well uh, by managing expectations, by stating up front exactly what the experience is going to be. It's a little different for you guys. Um, I was going to say, I think, I think one of the things that newer LARPs are really good at is providing nonverbal tools um, because, I mean, anybody at a sense of emotional, you know, of heightened emotion um, is going to have more trouble verbalizing. Um, for me, that's, it, that goes a lot out the window, and for my son, it goes entirely out the window because we're on the spectrum. So, you know, even just having sticky notes or, like, a whiteboard um, to even communicate, like, are you okay? I'll be fine you know, is more than some people can have in that moment verbally. And so 
things like the X card where you're just like, man, you know, or just like this um, are incredibly helpful, um, not just to not disrupting the general flow of the game, but providing people with tools that do not require like a ton of executive function and cognitive attention and stuff like that. So, in terms of um, when, when people say this is not a game, and I was I was promised a fun thing, and I want escapism, um, I think recommend pandemic. Uh, recommend <laughs> pandemic, and um, <laughs> tell them there's a kitty corner. Um, but I think engagism is absolutely as important as escapism and people actually agree with that even the ones who say um, that games are meant to be fun and that they don't get how this is a game actually they know that escapism can be scary and can directly impact your emotions and we do stuff like that when we watch really visceral horror films and we read books that make us cry and there are so many different forms of entertainment to give us different levels of escapism that are actually engaging with who we really are and taking us on a journey that's difficult and games should absolutely be able to do that. Something that uh, some some of the people who ask that question you they're just shits, and they're not going to... Right? See, they're, that's where I want to jump in a little bit. <laughs> is that it is so easy for us to say that someone who complains about games being these difficult things and they want them to be fun, to say, ah, fuck you. <laughs> you don't know anything, you're an idiot. Um, but I think there actually is, depending on the level of exhaustion and labor you're willing to put in, a lot to decode there based on someone's response when they say, games are supposed to be fun. And you ask them, well, what happened? Why wasn't this fun? Well, I was confronting an issue that I didn't expect to confront. Okay, and that wasn't fun. No, it wasn't fun. Well, what happened after that? If you can get an actual narration of their experience, apart from the mere nebulous outrage, you can perhaps get them to articulate something they didn't even know about themselves. And perhaps, if you're really lucky and you have the energy, time, and motivation to do it, they can be coaxed towards a discovery. Because actually, if they know that they don't like it, they're almost halfway there to discovering something about themselves. You're far too kind. <laughs> but it's, I think, you're, of course you're right. What, what I was going to say, though, is that uh, th that's absolutely true, and most people are not shit. Some people are going to just never... I'm sorry. People are lovely, and I'm going to stop saying that. Some people do bait. Right, right. And they're, they're, it's a political thing for them, and they're going to tell you that and they'll never change but a lot of people if you if you ask them what their most intense visceral uh, moment in a in a game was they can tell you that very clearly and it's it's a, it's either adjacent or on target with the kind of experience you're trying to give them uh, and some sometimes have, having that conversation will make them realize that what you're saying i think is that they haven't made the connection themselves yeah yeah, yeah. i think that's often true yeah. or, or that they're uh that they don't trust uh, either in themselves or in their environment, or that they've been hurt before, or that they're scared, uh, and that by uh, reacting hostily to something they don't quite understand, they are in, put in a more comfortable place. One of the less confrontative ways you can draw some of that out in a debrief is a really simple uh, like therapy technique, which is just reflective listening. Um, you know, they're saying, this, you know, this isn't a game. It wasn't any fun. You sound really angry that you had this experience. Yes, I am. I wanted this, and instead I feel this. I can tell that you're sad, you know, that you were sad in that scene. Um, and it's remarkable. It sounds like the 
dumbest thing in the world, uh, but it works every time. It's a springboard, and so even in the debrief, you can kind of access some of those things um, if they're willing to engage. I mean, they right, have to yeah, be willing to engage. So, any other questions? Oh, lots of questions. <laughs> Holy cow! Okay, how about uh, how about you, Jeff? Uh, yeah. So obviously, LARPs are great for engaging like, broad systemic issues, and, and that's awesome. But like in terms of um, you know journalism, is rapid response. Yes, <laughs> and yes, and um, you, you do it by encouraging people to create. Um, the, the part of um, one of the most joyous things about things like uh, the feminism nano games and Golden Cobra is just the invite to people to create games and to create ideas and to draw from the, these sort of things. And if more people feel that they can create games, then you have a better field of ability to response, to document, to be able to do something on, on the cuff saying, hey, this issue happened. We should build a game about this, and we should do it before Jason does. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also those, those kind of projects, uh, not only are they producing interesting work, but they're also communicating to people that interesting work is possible by them, right? If that makes sense. It makes sense to me. I think it makes sense. Um, so we've talked a lot about uh, the type of journalism where the players are the audience. Um, are there gaming, uh, are there games, are there gaming experiences that you have seen or, or performed where you as the game master are the audience, where you're using game as data collection? So like working with marginal, uh, marginalized communities, I'm looking at you, <laughs> you might have the answer. Uh, where, where you're working with marginalized communities and you're getting the information rather than giving it to them. So um, I can elaborate on that a lot. So if you want to hang out at some point this weekend, we could do that. Um, so I'll give you an example of how I'm trying to do this right now with the game I'm playtesting this weekend, the one about sex trafficking. It's called Seasoning. It still has slots in it. You can sign up. It's tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but uh, so... I wrote this game for five facilitators and one player. And um, I'm giving five people all the information up front about everything that's going to happen in the game. And I'm letting them plan out all the terrible things that they are going to do to one person who has no information whatsoever and is kept in a room with a blindfold on, essentially. Um, and all I want to do, I, I promise it's all going to be very safe. It sounds awful, but also <laughs> it awful. it's meant to sound awful. I've heard of Kappa. <laughs> um, all I want to be able to do when this game is being played and executed is I want to observe how these people build it and how far they decide to go uh, within the means of what everyone has consented to and what this one player's experience is and how much they gain and it's it's a bit of a weird social experiment um, and it's giving people a lot of control but I want to be able to do that I think just to be able to allow people I guess the freedom to express things that they've heard about and um, and do so safely and really be able to explore how dark that stuff gets with each other. 
And at the uh, completely opposite end of the spectrum, some of the games that I'm developing for medical education, like I'm saving hospital money, and there's a, there's a number associated with that that tells me whether I've succeeded or failed, and they, and they let me know. <laughs> I, I was going to add that um, there's a certain point when you go large scale that you relinquish control. And the fact that you relinquish control means that you are observing as if you are experiencing the journalism that your players are creating. And it, it's just a matter that the scope forces you to get comfortable with that. And, and that, 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 that scope allows you to, to either learn to accept that, and it's a very difficult thing where you have to learn to trust that the creation of your experience is not under your direction. You have given people instructions, and they are conducting their own orchestra. How about another question? You sir in the back. Um, so given the medium you guys are using, you're using LARPs, right? And from what I understand about it, it's very stark. You, you, you're using a lot of can be, yeah. It is sometimes. Yeah, it now, can be. How do you, like, for, for the goal that you guys are aiming for, like the idea that you're trying to push, how do you draw the line between catharsis and empathy? Because it's one thing for you to let your own emotions out, it's a complete other thing to understand somebody else's. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. You want to hit this or shall I do it? It sounds like you're eager to, so go right ahead. Yeah, I'm a little. Um, one of the things is you have to trust them to make that call on their own, is that you can present someone a game experience, and when you realize that LARP, in a certain degree large-scale ones, but also any LARP, requires the people who are participating in it to decide they're going to obey the rules <laughs> and they're going to decide to actually follow the, follow what the instructions are. So you create instructions for someone, it's very likely you ask them to do five things and they look down the list and they go, I'm going to do two and I'm going to do four and fuck the rest and there is no control method to allow for uh, correcting that course if it goes off. So it requires you incentivizing them to decide to do it on their own to, to make it something that is exciting and for them to just trust you enough and you have to actually present them reason for them to trust you enough to follow where it goes. I hope that answered your question. It sounds like it's part of the plan. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. A, there's a degree of trust involved that, that's inescapable. You have to trust people to find that, that line for themselves because I can't, it's difficult to control for that with a, a procedure, for example. Mm -hmm. I would argue that they're not necessarily familiar interaction like that the place where I mean there is always common ground and you have to drill down to the values that underpin that you know you might you might not understand sex trafficking but you but you we all understand um, exclusion and fear and things like that and that's where you that's the deeper point at which you connect and catharsis comes from there but so does empathy 
So it's that digging down part until you find the common bedrock, you know. One of the accusations that's blanketly thrown at Nordic LARP and the Nordic LARP styles that some of the games they like to do, because again, as uh, Jakob Stenros will tell us, Nordic LARP doesn't mean anything, but it's what they do over there, uh, is that a lot of their games are grief tourism. Which is you are? I was about to bring that. You're about to do. <laughs> take it from there. Then. I oh no! All I was going to say was that sometimes you're just going to have players that are there for misery tourism sure. or grief tourism, and you just can't do anything about those people. And they want to be emotional exhibitionists for a while and put on a big dramatic scene and really not learn anything or engage with anyone. And you just can't stop those people. They're going to do that sometimes. In Poland, they call it dying in cold water. <laughs> so I think it's lovely. That was my only point, is that they exist. Uh, that, that, that neatly steps into it. And that um, where I was going with, with the discussion about that was that people want to experience, and at least it appears they really want to experience to the point that there's an epithet that's an insult about it, they want to experience someone else's other experience, specifically the ones that are difficult. Mm. That grief tourism exists as, as a derogatory thing. When you examine it, it just blows my mind that someone is willfully trying to experience something that someone else's experience is that is negative so they can understand it, and that is looked at as, as, as their tourism, as their enjoyment of it. We have time for one more question, maybe? Actually, I just kind of had a okay. Costuming mm. up instead of yeah. embodying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I, I've seen a lot of this from um, uh, criticism coming from uh, mostly like black Twitter and um, when they examine slavery narratives and other, other narratives that focus on black grief. And sometimes, and then looking at how various narratives are treated and how sometimes. I think I, I think I get what you're coming from there, which is that a person's ability to experience this sort of simulation of a very harsh reality for someone from a marginalized group to be able to pick that up and put it down and to to claim having experienced it mm -hmm. is um, is exactly as you described very problematic. Um, I don't know the solution. Um, it's among the things that I still battle with my European friends about is what blackface really means in America versus what it means in Europe and why we can never do business with them if we have a picture of them in blackface doing racial makeup in, in, in Italy. And they they in refuse Holland, yeah. to, to understand mm -hmm. that this is so toxic here. You cannot do that ever, even if you think it's okay based on the fact that for whatever reason, it's the one just day of the can't year. Do it. <laughs> yeah, just do not. It, it, That's it's a, a very difficult conversation to have. Is is that it, it, when you try to express that the toxicity surrounding minstrelsy and the minstrel shows being done for three hundred years is is just too much of a burden to allow for really any way to touch that particular thing. It, it, it becomes a very difficult conversation. 
We have time for one more question. And uh, lots of people have them, but let's, let's ask. Uh, um, so something that I haven't heard addressed very much right now um, in regards to gaming as journalism and all that is I'd like to hear your experience as when you decided that something was worth gamifying, where you're like, this is a topic that really needs to be addressed and isn't just something we blog about, but is actually something that needs to be like kinesthetically experienced. Can you guys talk about when those decisions were made with your games or things that you're thinking about? Uh, sure, I'll start. Uh, I think uh, it's when, when I get mad about it, <laughs> right? Like when I'm enraged and I feel helpless. Uh, when I look to see what tools I have to affect change, uh, th that's when it starts for me. Very similar. Um, when I come across something that enrages me and upsets me, and I start talking about it, and I realize no one knows what I'm talking about, <laughs> or they have the vaguest notion of what this issue really is, and um, and I... I can't write about it and I can't show them a movie because it's not enough. And um, I start wanting to simulate that experience. Um, it, it's a case that I see other people dropping the ball and in terms of their content that they create. And I feel that at that point I have an obligation to, to try to pick it up. And the games I wish were out there that I don't create because I'm not that person. But... Um, are when I see too many people like accepting the the facade, the like the the first level of contact and understanding as the entirety of that thing. Mm. Um, yeah. So thank you very much. Uh, we're gonna stick around. Some of us will stick around, and and we're gonna be here for the rest of the convention. We'd love to talk more about this stuff because obviously we care lots about it. So if you have other questions, please approach us and 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 ask. Uh, throughout Metatopia. Thanks, thanks a lot. Actually, I believe that term was coined by Lizzie Stark.